Hello there. Welcome to Tuesday afternoon. My name is Brett McGarry. Je m'appelle Greg Macklin. How language are linguistically diverse of you. It's Tuesday. I don't know what that means. <laughs> we Tuesday. thought it was, well, one of our colleagues thought it was Wednesday earlier. Yeah, he said so. it felt like Wednesday. I don't know what Wednesday feels like, but uh, yesterday certainly felt like a Monday. So I'll give him a pass on that because days do have a feel without question. Wednesday feels like 35 cent draft night. Oh my gosh, you're going far back. I know. Two university days. Was that on purpose? Sure, Was yes. That your yes. Segue into our conversation about university. That's exactly mm, what I planned. You're so clever, Brett. Yes. Of course, uh, big topic of conversation. Manitoba University and college tuition could go up 5% plus the rate of inflation. We'll get to that conversation in just a few moments here. Set up the rest of the program. Sesame Street has a new character coming to the airwaves to its program uh, next month. This Muppet has autism. We'll find out if that's a good thing and if Sesame Street is doing a service by taking this approach and we'll visit with an autism expert to talk about autism in general and that move by Sesame Street. We will also find out about encouraging young people to get into manufacturing and different technologies. We talk uh, an awful lot about entrepreneurship on this program and the Canadian manufacturers and exporters, they are kicking off manufacturing week. And one of the things that's been going on for the past several months is a competition to encourage young people to discover manufacturing and different processes. We'll, we'll find out about the discovery program later on this afternoon. I want to talk right now about tuitions and get your feedback on this. Uh, I, I, I know that there's always, anytime the, we discuss the notion of tuitions going up in this province, there's a lot of fear uh, and there's, and, and Hey, it's, it's, expensive it's hard to pay your tuition without relying on a student loan and if you aren't relying on a student loan then it's hard to go to school full time right without working some in some capacity so yeah it's it's a it's a tricky subject i always was thankful when i was going to either university and then later red river college that i lived in manitoba and not somewhere in the United States, for example, where tuition can get up to $62,000 in the most expensive form, the most expensive university in the U.S. Sarah Lawrence College in New York in uh, 2012-13, tuition fees, Reuben Board, cost $61,236 for a year. I suppose the consolation is that you don't have to pay for your food or a place to live out of that amount of money, mm. but that's a ton of cash. Yes. Right? So you'd have to be pretty brilliant to justify that investment or well off to be able to afford that type of investment. And I guess that word is the question of the day in my mind. Is this an investment that should be solely born on the taxpayer? Is this an investment by the students themselves to have a better life or, as it is right now, is it a partnership between the government of the day or the, the current government, the provincial government, and individuals who want to go and pursue, pursue post-secondary education? Is this an investment that we need to make as, as a society, as a province? And are we uh, doing enough to support those that want to go? What do you think about that? Is, is, is this something that is a worthwhile investment? 
204-780-6868 is the number to call. It is the number to text. Maybe you have a student loan story that you would like to share. I I will say it, will fully admit, I really don't know all that much about student loans because they student loans never were a part of my world. When I went to university, I wasn't entirely certain what I wanted to do. So I took a, a quote full course load and by definition it was a full course load but general it, art yeah so i think in my first term i took four classes and then in my second term i took three so i, I did that partly because i didn't quite know what i wanted and it allowed me to continue to work so that i could afford to pay for university and not have to get a student loan so i don't really know it doesn't it never affected me did you ever? Yeah, I took on student loans a couple of different times, and I felt that it was a worthwhile investment on my part in order to better myself and to advance my worldview. I don't know if it ever ultimately helped me get the job that I wanted, but it certainly gave me a, a leg up and in jobs down the road, and it certainly was an experience that I'm glad that I had. Uh, I was much like you, was never really certain what I wanted to do. And so as I pursued my arts degree and realized I don't really know what I want to do, um, finances did become a question. And I've always felt that guys and gals like me who go into that arts degree and that arts program in the first year should be maybe paying a little bit extra to incentivize you to stick around and to make it through that first year because we are investing about two-thirds of the cost of that education in our students, we being the general po- population and the government. I want to invest in people that complete their degrees. So maybe the first year should be a little bit more expensive. And then that should get decreasingly expensive the closer you get to your degree. I don't know. I've had lots of different thoughts and discussions on it over the years. But uh, I don't like the idea of subsidizing someone that just wants to go and mess around for a year. And then go, ah, no, it's not for me. But on the other hand, I don't want to discourage people like you who didn't really know what they wanted to do and like myself and then be deprived of that exposure to sociology, to psychology, some of the other uh, general arts courses that you take in that that discovery year. And I think they've maybe addressed that somewhat, Brett, with the idea of University One, where that's kind of a general year where you just go and it's almost like a, a buffet of education, right, to find out what it is that you like. And if you're fortunate enough to be focused on a major or on a specific degree, say a teaching degree, you can take all the courses that you need and that you want. But uh, if you're not sure what you want to take, you can certainly do that as well. I'm of two minds on the whole thing, and that's why we're looking for your input on this. I feel sort of guilty that I didn't complete my university degree why is that because <laughs> i was i i feel like i'm the i'm that guy that you said you're not sure you want to subsidize i went in i and was didn't that really guy know. too though i was that guy too and i don't like barriers to education to post-secondary and to higher education i don't you know it shouldn't be a class thing it shouldn't be a financial thing but it is a financial barrier and there is an investment there is a cost to it and i really want people there that want to be there that aren't there because they have to be or because their mom and dad will write a check. I took, and I, I like. Well, I do like the idea as well of having a discovery year because that's sort of. I went in with the idea that I would go into the faculty of management, 
And so I took all of the basic requirements, which if memory serves were psychology, economics, calculus, linear algebra. I can't remember. I think statistics maybe was an elective. And uh, so I think it was just, I think maybe it was those four. And I ended up actually really liking the psychology part. And I sort of bailed off of that path to go into management and instead pursued psychology, but realized I had no idea what I wanted to do with it. Do I want to try to be a professor? Do I want to be a researcher? Do I want to be a, a psychologist? I had no idea. And I realized I was wasting my time in university, just kind of wandering through it like a nomad. So, and I think that all that, that falls on me for not going in with at least some sort of a semblance of a plan. I think having that, that, that option for discovery is great, but once you discover what you like, you got to make a plan. Did you I have didn't. a counselor at all in university that helped you with that? Because uh, I, I know I they've didn't. got counseling services, but... I didn't, but it's probably, well, that's probably because I didn't seek it out. Right. So I think it, you know, a lot, hey, was young and dumb and made all sorts of mistakes and ended up ultimately in the place where I wanted to be, which is here. So, but uh, having that discovery year, I think, was helpful. I just wish I had sort of followed through on what I discovered. Student loans become a bigger conversation in this overall discussion, right? Because not only does the government subsidize, uh, just number is two-thirds. I'm going to take that and run with it until somebody tells me otherwise of uh, university education for students here in Manitoba. So a lot of people end up borrowing the other third. Now, I know Jeff was throwing around all sorts of numbers about hundreds of millions of dollars being written off by CRA and by the student loans. But there are about $28 billion in outstanding student loans, and they're writing off anywhere from three to four to $500 million a year. So it's about, it's about one to two to three to 4%, somewhere around there. It's under 5%. Okay. So I don't know if that's something that we should expect, if that's just par for the course when you're making an investment and you're lending money out in that massive sort of outlay, are you expecting that there's going to be a certain percentage of people that don't pay their loans back? And if they're not paying them back, how long should that debt dog you? Until the day you die? Is there a window there? You know, that's a question for a lot of people as well. $28,000 seems to be the average right now of student loan debt when you come out of university. That's it's a big number. Yeah. To start behind the eight ball, it's a down payment on a house. And you got to pay that off now before you maybe even start looking at a house, although a lot of people uh, start making good money right out of university and you can spread those payments and those university um, student loans out across a long amount of time. But is that too much? $28,000? Is that about right in terms of an investment for your future? Would really love to hear from you and your and your experience and what you think about A, tuition, B, student loan, student debt, and whether overall this is a worthwhile investment. And is it too much to imagine a 5% plus tuition increase in one year? Seems like an awful lot. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. It is the number to text. We'd love to hear your story. And maybe you have concerns about this as your kids get ready or approach post-secondary education.
204-780-6868. Your forecast is up next. Maybe to kickstart the conversation, we'll go back about an hour and a bit to Jeff Courier's program and his take on the investment required by individuals, by the government, by all peoples towards university education. Tuition for our universities is likely to go up 2018 to a maximum of 5% plus consumer price index, cost of living. So it's it's going to be a significant hike, to be sure, for most students in Manitoba, where we still have among the cheapest tuition in the country. Certainly much lower than our neighbors, both to the east and west in Saskatchewan and Ontario. Cold comfort, though, when you're when the tuition's going up. But it's going to happen. Costs keep going up. Here's a text message at 780-6868 from Ryan. When you have to pay more, no one is ever happy. I'm in food service sales. No one is ever like, hey, can I pay more for that? But it's a part of life. Here's another from Edward. This one says, tuition is going to go up, and so will student loans and defaults on those student loans. Tuition is already too expensive, and this is just going to lead to more debt for students. Well, don't go. I mean, dial 1-800-WEN. I just have zero sympathy for university students who whine about what it costs for their education when their fellow citizens are already covering more than two-thirds of that through their taxes. Shouldn't you have to pay something for your own education? If it's post-secondary? And if you don't want to go, don't go. There's somebody else waiting to take your spot. What do you want to do with your life? You want a post-secondary education or not? There's a cost attached to that. Our problem is that we allow student loans to default in this country. In the hundreds of millions of dollars every year, student loans default in Canada. Why the federal government continues to write them off is one of the great mysteries of the modern age. Because that's your money, folks. You want to know where some of your money's being squandered? Student loans that never get repaid. So Jeff says, call the ambulance. This is something that if you want a better better education to get a better job down the road, this is something you need to invest in. The the citizens of Manitoba are already stepping up. And why should you be complaining about the idea of higher tuition fees when they're already the lowest in Western Canada? Not to mention, we did got a text message here, and I got my, is it cockles? Is that right? Sure. That's right. As we discussed the cost, let's not forget all the education credits on our taxes. It costs almost nothing when that is factored in. And I thought, yeah, you know, the book credit and all that sort of stuff, that wasn't that big of a deal. But then I remembered, you know what? Manitoba has a pretty sweet deal. And you can essentially receive... A 60% income tax rebate on your eligible tuition fees to a maximum benefit of $25,000. You can claim your rebate over as little as six years or as long as 20 years. So if you paid $40,000 in tuition fees to get your degree, you can get $24,000 worth of tax credits or rebates over six or 20 years. Wow, that's pretty generous. I did that. That reminds me. Yes, when I when I did my taxes after graduating at Red River College, I I got a refund in the around twenty two hundred dollars, and I was stunned because I had I had always gotten refunds, but always like between three to six hundred bucks, nothing really. To, sure. 
So when I got that, I was like, oh, yes. So was that a one-time deal, or did you get a series of of pretty decent tax uh, rebates and refunds based on on claiming that tax credit? I think it was just once because the the second year it wasn't quite as as much. But I think my tuition in the first year was higher. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why it wasn't so so significant in the second year. Oh, you probably graduated after this program I just cited came into effect. You're talking about the actual tax credit for your tuition at the time because that is that's always been fairly generous okay that was it's why i graduated in 2004 yeah i can't remember when that came into effect i'll have to take another look at the legislation uh yeah like i said two minds on on this that's why i wanted to open the phone lines on this and uh, find out your experience is education is post-secondary education too expensive. Elizabeth is at 204-780-6868. Elizabeth, what do you think? Well, part of what I'm wondering while I'm listening to this, and I haven't heard anybody discuss it, is there not an RESP program where parents put in some money, the government put it, Mm -hmm. matches a portion of it while the kids are like from babies up. By the time they go to school, their tuition's prepaid. So why are we hanging all of this on the students now saying, I'm broke, I can't go to school? Can we put some of this on the parents going, oops, I didn't plan that maybe my child needed an education? Yeah, the RESP program, Elizabeth, is something I'm a big believer in. And the government matches it up. There's a certain maximum every year. I think they'll match up to about $4,000, and that's up to 20%. They'll match 20% of everything you put in to a RESP and a matching grant. In fact, the cash goes in quarterly. They will put the money in. And uh, that's up to a maximum, I think, of four or five thousand dollars every single year. So if you maximize your ability to invest in the RESP, you're right. You should have fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars. But that not everybody can save that amount of money. It's it, it takes a lot of time to save a big amount of money. But if you start early, it adds up really quick. And I, I think that's a really good point. Oh yeah, and I mean, even if they're not able to put in the full amount every year. Whatever portion they put in gets a portion matched. And even if they can do half, that'll pay for one degree. Elizabeth, thank you so much for the call at 204-780-6868. We have to pause. Global News at 1.30. Coming up next on 680 CJOB. Craig Mackling and Brett McGarry with you on this Tuesday afternoon. We're talking about university education, college education. Is it too expensive? And the fact that Manitoba may raise tuition as much, well, institutions may raise tuition as much as 5% plus the cost of living and the cost of inflation. Is that too much? Is that too rich for our blood? Or is that, hey, you know what? As Jeff Courier says, call the ambulance if you don't like it. This is something you need to do if you want to invest in your future. It is 134. I'm Mackling and McGarry, and we are going to start with Amanda, 204-780-6868. Hello there, Amanda. What do you have to say about all this? Hi. I was actually right in agreement with the last lady that called, um, just because I had actually done that for my child. Um, I did the RSP thing, got her into school. She did fine. She, you know, it wasn't that big of a deal. I think it's an excellent program. If more people aren't educated about it, I really hope that they try to. Um, it saved me as a young mother, and believe me, I am a young mother. 
Um, I'm only 36 years old, and when I graduated my class, I was actually told by the dean of the school that I should count myself lucky because even though I thought it was expensive, we are one of the cheapest provinces to go to school at the time. Um, so I'm. she already said everything I needed to say. She's. I'm in 100% agreement. More people need to get on board with that savings plan. It's excellent. It helps. Look into it. Do it. Trust me. <laughs> Amanda, did your parents help you uh, with your schooling when you were younger after you were done high school? Did you go to university you or to what? college? Unfortunately, um, I come from a background where my my family couldn't afford to do so. Um, but I graduated from Herzing College from their administrative assistant program. It's a wonderful school. Um, and like I said, there, when I went to school, I graduated in 2006 from Herzing College. And I was told then that we have the lowest rates in Canada. And um, yeah, 10 years later, I'm debt-free and my child's gone through school and she's having the same experience. Good for you. Congratulations yeah. on that, Amanda. I think the RESP is one of the best things you can do, bar none for your child. You couldn't get me to agree with uh, our last two callers anymore, Brett. I think it's something that uh, you need to start as soon as your, your baby's born. It makes it that much easier without any question. Let's go to Mary at 204-780-6868. Hey, Mary, what do you think? Hey, good afternoon. This is about the RESP. This is what these grandparents did. From the time our grandchildren were born, we started an RESP for them. Only put in $10 a month for each one of them, but what a fantastic graduation present. No. From Guido and Baba. No At the end of the day. Are, right. I, I hear you getting emotional there, uh, Baba. Well, I am, because we've been able to help our grandchildren, and it's it's been wonderful, you know? It's it's a genuine uh, investment, without question. Are you, are you prepared to, to tell us how much you were able to sock away over the years? Oh, just $10 a month for each grandchildren. Oh, for each grandchild? Okay. Uh, our first grandchild that went to university, we were able to give her $3,500. Fantastic. And our second one, because the money was, I don't know, made a little more money, was 4000 And there's still money sitting there for the other four. <laughs> <laughs> You're fabulous. Thank you for sharing that with us, Mary. Just really so that, appreciate you know, it. We talk, we've talked to people about that, and they didn't know that grandparents could do that. So that's why I thought I would call and put that out there. We appreciate that very much. Thank you, Mary. We appreciate the call at 204-780-6868. We'll return now to Bill. Hey, Bill, what do you think? Hey, uh, just uh, in response to uh, the girl there said, put it on the parents. So as a father of four, 33 years old, with a right to run the little home daycare, after we're done paying for three boys hockey and one girl gymnastics, consistent nonstop fundraisers from the school through the sports program, uh, sure, we could put away the last little tiny bit of money that we have for an RSTP or whatever, or we can go out on the weekend and have fun as a family. Like, just, these kids, if you want the if you want the higher education, get ready to work and work for it. Bill, what do you say? And 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 I don't mean to say this to to throw sand in your face or anything like that. I get the I I get it costs life costs money. Uh, what do you say in response to Mary saying ten bucks a month? Ten bucks a month is a is a great plan. Over four kids, now we're looking at what is that forty bucks a month? That could be a weekend out. Uh, some people are benefited with having grandparents and or parents that are still around. But at 33, with four kids, we're forging ahead. We pay our mortgage. We do what we have to do. And $40 a month is huge. Maybe not to a lot of people, but it is to us. So 
maybe we could just stay home and not do anything on the weekends with 40 bucks fill the tank and take you out to the beach for the day, right? So, Bill, what's the plan then when your kids want to do the post-education thing, post-secondary education? They're going to be, uh, I guess, getting student loans, right? Uh, get a job, and we'll help out where we can. Right on. Same thing when they want kids or when they want cars. You want a car? You got to get at least halfway up there, and we'll help you along the rest of the way. But you got to nothing comes free. I didn't get anything free. I didn't get any handouts from anybody, and we're successful as it is. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate that. Thank you for uh, for giving us the uh, other side of this conversation. That's why we do what we do. There's so many sides to this discussion, and we are uh, getting lots of phone calls at seven eight zero six eight six eight. We invite you to participate. And I appreciate uh, what he was saying about hey, that forty bucks a month. That might be uh, I'll go towards a weekend out, you know, that which will then form a lifelong memory for that family. So that is important as well. And I just wanted to make sure it didn't sound like I was trying to, to take away from that experience. I respect that a lot. So good for you. Jeff, is that 204-780-6868? Hey, Jeff, what do you think? Uh, I really like the idea of uh, a graduation present, which means somebody else invested in the education. And you can help reimburse them if you're that kind. And uh, I think that student loans should be attached to the parents, too. I think that maybe help with the default rate. Mm. But uh, if you take a look at all the new cars these kids are driving, the latest cell phones, the kids have them for the parents, uh, go to a bar in the evening and see what the cover charge is, watch the kids streaming in there, uh, see what a drink costs at night, what an evening out costs. Their social lives are better than ours, and they complain about the thing that's going to carry them through the rest of their life. And if you want a cheap education and drive a cheap car and have a cheap house, well, then good for you. And if you want a nice car and if you want a nice life and holidays, and uh, I think a great education would correspond with that. So it's their decision what they want, but all the perks the kids are carrying right now is what's not allowing them to understand why they cannot afford their education because they can. They're just their lifestyles out of control. That's a fair point, Jeff, and I appreciate that uh, because I know that there was one point when I went back to college. When I went, I, I did three years of university, stopped, worked full time, and then was faced with the decision: go back to school or get out, <laughs> move out right. uh, of the parents. And I went back to school because I had been thinking about it for a couple of years, but I wasn't prepared to make the adjustment to from full time income to part-time income and it cost me i ended up going into some pretty significant debt but you stayed home i did you stayed home so that's another investment right that individuals and parents make in terms of an education for their child right is allowing them to stay at home and here's one that we might not think of on text as the parents of three kids in university the cost of tuition is significant but rural kids and parents also face the cost of paying rent for accommodation which can surpass the overall cost of tuition this is a cost urban kids parents don't see i'm not complaining as we willing willingly pardon me do it to set the kids up for a better future. Once again, it is a massive investment. It's it's not an expenditure. It's an investment, and I think you have to view it that way. Don is that 204-780-6868. Don, what do you think? Hi. Uh, my, my thing is I, I know that tuition is going to rise regardless, and there's nothing you or me can do about it. But what I would like to see is I'd like to see the universities be more flexible in their scheduling. Like, I have a degree already. And when I went to school, I had to I had to work nights and weekends, and life stopped for me until I got my degree, because I paid for it all myself. And when I when I graduated, I didn't have a 
a diamond bet or nothing, but I, I, I worked seven days a week while I was going to school because I had to change my whole schedule to accommodate the university schedule. What the universities don't do is there's not very, very many evening or correspondence courses open to people who want to take courses so they can still continue working during the days. A lot of the university courses are, are between nine to five and you're, you're almost forced to have to give up a job to go to school and you you become dependent on the system and on everybody else. I'd like to see universities become more flexible with the scheduling. Like, I don't understand why they, they don't have more evening courses and more correspondence courses for the courses you want to take. I mean, it might take a little longer, but it might be more affordable for people in the end. Well, and Don, that's a, that's a good point, and thank you for so raising too. it, uh, because, and I, I'm certainly not going to point any fingers. I haven't looked at what is available in the at the University of Manitoba or University of Winnipeg. I don't know what they have for correspondence, but I will say that in the year 2017, if I can't make it to a class that starts at 9.30 in the morning, it would be nice if I had an option to maybe t- maybe do it on my own time. So I'd have to, I'm really, I'm now genuinely curious to see what options are available for people who still need to work their regular day job. Yeah, you know, and we could reach out to the universities and find out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for a long time, most of the lectures have been available online if you can't make it to a lecture and uh, some materials and whatnot. And that's not for every class, certainly, but for a lot of them. Uh, but I think Don makes a really good point. Uh, universities and post-secondary education uh, facilities need to change with the times, mm-hmm. right? Because we are at a time where there are people who are going back for upgrading. They want to change. We talk about and hear all the time about you're going to have four or five careers in your lifetime. Well, wouldn't it make sense that we wouldn't have to quit one to learn about another. And so I would have to imagine that at some point, if it's not already happening, we might need to, and we might in fact see more of those opportunities in what we would consider traditional off hours for education. We're going to take more of your calls in a moment. We're talking about tuition and the the possibility that tuition is going to go up in Manitoba now that changes have been made by the province moving to uh, change the uh, legislation regarding higher tuition rates. And uh, we have a few people on hold, and we will get to you momentarily. 204-780-6868 is the number to call and the number to text. Your forecast up next. We have a ton of phone calls, jam-packed lines. I do have some more information on RESPs for you, but I want to get to these phone calls uh, as we can here. I want to thank you for calling in. And uh, who are we going to next here, Brett? We'll start with Paulo, who's been waiting patiently for nine and a half minutes. Paulo, we thank you for that patience. What do you have to say? Thank you, both of you guys. I just want to tell you guys one thing. We live in the great country. I'm immigrant to this country from Sudan. We live in the great country, but people taking advantage of it, especially us as a Canadian. Because if one of these people travel outside of this country for one week, if they come back to Canada, they never complain again. And I do agree with that grandmother, 10 bucks a month. Guys, we have a children. Government pays our child tax benefit. Where that money goes? That money, it be send it from the government to the children. Why would you open the account RSP and put that money for the kids for the future? It's a great... I think it's a lot of chances. It's a lot of chances. You can buy a clothes for a child from place for 50 bucks. You can go to Walmart. You can buy the same clothes for 10 bucks. 
you're saving $40 for your future of the, for your child. The child from the day one, the government paid them every month, just an example, say $200. Paulo, how many kids do you have? I get two boys. And uh, may I ask how old they are? Mine, mine now is almost finished. You're going to be a pilot. Almost. And where did you say you came <laughs> from? I came from the Sudan. You came from the Sudan. And yeah, I'm parents from South Sudan, but I don't believe in South and North. I believe in Sudan is one country. And that's it. And you came to our I'm country. So, I'm, so grateful. I'm so grateful to be in this great country. It's just about the management. Because you are feet in the fire and feet in the water, not like the one feel the heat. And that's what I mean. But if you manage your life, you have a wife, you sit with your wife, manage your life. Manage the life that you do. The money is coming from your wife, 10 bucks. Are you working with this? Five bucks. Put it together, it's 15 bucks. Use the 10 and save the five. All right, Paula, thank you so much for so your much enthusiasm. Passion there. Indeed, wow. we very much appreciate your call. We're going to go next to Jennifer. Jennifer, what do you have to say about this? Hi. Yeah, no, I have dual citizenship to Canada and England, and I decided to go to school in Canada. And... I was thinking the same thing with that other guy uh, mentioned about having um, different schedules for different people, because in England they do that. And, well, in England they have it uh, schooling for free. Um, I just find here we don't really accommodate to the needs of the students very well. Um, After I graduated... I had to end up getting a job for minimum wage and still paying back a student loan, which didn't really work out for me. Um, It was really hard to pay back a student loan being a single mom and having a minimum wage job after I went to school and spent all that time doing that. So I I think there's... Jennifer, I apologize. I'm cutting you off here, but I have to ask you, you got a degree after high school? And then you ended up having to work for minimum wage. Some people uh, are going to be saying that doesn't compute. I just found it hard to find a job in that um, in the field that I was looking for, and I didn't end up getting in the field that I was looking for. And um, that uh, I ended up just having to get a regular job that would uh, accommodate for being a single mom and getting my daughter into daycare. All right, Jennifer, thank you so much for your feedback. We very much appreciate it. We're going to try to get our last two calls in. Ryan is at 204-780-6868. Hey, Ryan, what do you have to say? Well, it's uh, there was a caller, a few callers back, that that mentioned about lifestyle and stuff like that and said, well, you know, your your kids got cell phones and uh, they're driving a car. You know, you can get a beater for 800 bucks, and for, uh, you know, as long as you check it out, sometimes you can get good deals out there. And for, you know, another four or $500, you can maybe get some small things fixed, get it safetyed, and get it on the road. Um, a doctorate uh, could cost you $60,000 if you're going to go for a full doctorate. And some smaller degrees and stuff could cost you $35,000, $40,000. There's a huge difference. Um, I have a cell phone plan. I just yesterday, I have two people on my plan. One person on our plan, uh, it's a share everything plan, and one person on our plan just upgraded a new phone. Rogers just 
gave us a new phone. Gave us. My, my payments aren't changing. It's going to be the same payments every month. It's just because, you know, we're up for a, a upgrade on a device. And that's just how it works. So because their kid has a phone and they're maybe driving a car at 16, man, the cost difference. You know, if you're below the upper middle class bracket, uh, there's a, a really strong chance you don't have extra money in the family to be putting aside for uh, uh, maybe three kids to go to do a $40,000 education. The reality is student loans are going to happen. Uh, and they're not always easy to get. Not everybody gets approved. If you don't have good credit, uh, you can't co-sign for your kids, right? And uh, if you're living in poverty, you might not have good credit. Uh, you you might have bounced on some bills and stuff like that. And now you can't even help your kids get a student loan. Ryan, we apologize. we got to leave it there. And Chris, we're going to leave you, end up leaving you on the line altogether. We apologize for that. Thank you for all of your input on this. Uh, clearly a conversation that has lots of divergent views and all sorts of factors that we need to take into account as we discuss the cost of a university education. It is 157 on 680 CJOB. Global News at 2 o'clock, up next. We love segues in this business, and maybe we can segue our previous hour worth of conversation into this next uh, 15 minutes or so. And the idea that we're looking for better opportunities for our young people, Brett, education takes many shapes and forms. And I think we were concentrating an awful lot on the university tuition discussion. And we had a conversation, or at least I did while you were doing news there with a listener named Chris. And he said, you know what, Greg? He says, uh, I'm encouraging my boys uh, to go to college for a trade. Less debt after everything is said and done. And in our economy right now, tradespeople are very sought after and making an excellent living, not just a good living, an excellent living is uh, really within the realm of possibility. And so I wanted to get that out there because it is something to talk about, to consider. And I think that we sometimes get distracted from the idea of going into a trade when we get overwhelmed with the idea of discussing endlessly university and university tuition. I think that the colleges and the trades sometimes get ignored. So I wanted to rectify that. I wish I, I will just very quickly say when I was uh, in high school, there was a bit of a thought on that. There was a, there was a sense in the, the mid nineties, at least when I was getting ready to graduate that if you went to a trade, you were somehow not as good. I don't know. Um, which Makes me. I it's a, it, in looking back, it was folly to think that, and I realized the error of of. But I guess I had just that's what I had sort of not well, grown up to believe, but learned to believe because I was a quote unquote bookworm. I was never. I would have been a terrible tradesperson anyway. Right. But I, I at least wish I had a more open mind. Well, I was just it. reading an article in Forbes magazine that uh, industry is encouraging the United States to investigate reinvesting in vocational schools. And we've done a good job of that here in Manitoba. There's just a huge trades uh, school expansion up at Red River that I think just opened on Thursday or Friday, 100,000 square feet for the trades. And I think this does tie into what we've invited our next guest on to discuss. It's Ron Kozlowski. He's vice president of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters here in Manitoba. And this week is Manufacturing Week, such a huge part of our economy here in Manitoba. Ron, before we discuss that, maybe 
tie that to the conversation about education and then tie it into the Discovery Program's final uh, that's taking place as part of Manufacturing Week. I know I gave you a lot to unpack there. I apologize. No worries, no worries. I, listen, I love the conversation. Uh, so the real, you're right. The problem is that young people, and, and younger than even high school, uh, young people are not ever really exposed uh, in any, to any great extent to what's out there beyond high school. And they really uh, have been all taught to go to university, uh, as you've already suggested. Uh, so there are a lot of opportunities in trades, but there's other career opportunities in manufacturing that are all over the place. So what, uh, what the challenge is, because they don't know what's out there, they don't know what, what education is important, what they're, you know, what they're really good at in the first place, what they'd enjoy doing. Uh, and, and therefore, they, they don't even know. And one high school grad mentioned to me, typically we go off of grade 12 into this big unknown cliff. Mm-hmm. And, and then they struggle. I was on the Red River College board, uh, and the average age is quite high. And, and the tip, a lot of students are coming after having spent some time at university because they didn't really know what they wanted to do or what was out there uh, that, would, that could be commercialized. So what we're trying to do, tying it back to our discovery program, because obviously we're interested in manufacturing, but we're teach young people in high schools and the teachers there and giving them a project to work on, building radio-controlled hovercraft that they then compete uh, in several different occasions. uh, And they have to go out to connect with business, to build business plans, to get some supplies, to put together this program. So they got technology, creativity, teamwork, all that good stuff. And then they come and they compete. They drive around a track. So you can do that the fastest. And then they present their business plans. And uh, then the top three uh, teams at our competition, that's going on right now as we speak here at the convention center, the top three teams that are selected by a panel of industry and, uh, and uh, government and academic uh, people that are involved in entrepreneurship will then be awarded scholarships on Thursday night at our big uh, awards dinner for for manufacturers, but we also throw in students there. So that's a long-winded answer to a long question, but uh, really we're just trying to encourage a, a much more of a career awareness uh, and therefore better choices for our young people uh, that when they grow up. Ron, the, the headline in the media advisory that we received says, Manufacturing Week celebrates the future of manufacturing in mm-hmm. Manitoba. For those who maybe don't know the, what the what the the umbrella covers when we talk about manufacturing what are we talking about well that's a big question we're talking about anything that where uh, where a particular item a, a physical product if you will has got some value added to it it could be everything from making airplanes and buses to all kinds of parts and components for the things that we enjoy all every day in our lives or it could be things like food or drugs that are produced and manufactured for us to use uh, for our health and, and welfare. Uh, so manufacturing is very, very broad uh, in, in terms of scope, if you think of it that way. And as a result, so are the jobs and the career opportunities. And there are, I mean, literally thousands of different kinds of careers in manufacturing. So, so it's hard to just nail them down in any one way. But you mentioned trades. There's all kinds of technical kind of jobs. And by the way, they require, in some cases, a lot more uh, brains, if you will, and learning than some of the other uh, careers that are out there in the offices that perhaps aren't quite as, as uh, detailed. Uh, but it, it's a whole range of logistics, supply chain, uh, 
marketing, sales, account, accounting, uh, and you go into product development, uh, and and you know on and on and on. There's there's just a ton of different jobs that are available uh, in the manufacturing sector alone. Ron, is this diversification exemplified? This world of manufacturing and exporting, and and creating these new opportunities for Manitobans. Is there diversification? Well, does it not exemplify the idea of diversification? Oh. Oh. We we talk about the key to a healthy economy in yeah. this day and age is diversification, and with all the different opportunities within manufacturing and exporting, yeah. uh, it does ex- exemplify yeah. the whole idea of of being diversified. Yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. It, it covers such a broad uh, spectrum, not only of manufacturing jobs, but in Manitoba, we're very privileged to have uh, prob- what's probably the most diverse manufacturing environment in the country. In other words, we do a little bit of everything in Manitoba. And, uh, and, and that's quite, you know, often people don't realize that this is a real manufacturing hub for Canada. Uh, you know, they think of the automotive sector in Ontario or, or perhaps, uh, you know, uh, in Quebec, a few things. But Manitoba has got the most diverse and, and broad spectrum of manufacturing and uh, and therefore we we can and we do a good job of sharing with each other uh, to make sure that every manufacturer is, is supported with ideas that help uh, both in their own sector and beyond. Ron, why is Manitoba such a hub for manufacturing? Well, I, I think it, I mean it, the history plays a little bit in this. We we were sort of the outpost to the west. Uh, we were the last stop before the the big prairies uh, from from the east. So and it was as you know it was a transportation hub. So. So a lot of things sort of came and went from this, using this as a center, a jump-off point. Uh, but we're also far enough away from other markets that so many things, you know, we had either had to wait for a while to get them from somewhere else, or we would build them ourselves. And we have a, a strong agricultural background, and, and uh, I came from a farm, and I know that so many of our industries have actually started by little entrepreneurial, you know, farmers or people that were independent that had to, you know, develop something while they were waiting because they couldn't wait for some product to come from the east, and so we started just building our own stuff locally. And next thing you know, uh, you know, it's it's exportable. It can go across the border, and in fact, anywhere in the world. So we've got some fantastic companies of that started on a farmyard here, and are now selling earth-moving equipment to Australia and, and the Middle East, and so on. You've got a great big Gallo Awards dinner coming up on the 23rd. Mm. You're going to be honoring a couple exemplary uh, business people, and really uh, they are pioneers in, in both their respective yeah. fields in uh, Neil Carlson and Emmerich Duha. Maybe talk about yeah. them before we let you go. Okay, sure. No, We, we love to celebrate uh, people that have really gone and, and been pioneers and, and started businesses. We also celebrate current ones, but... In the case of, of Neil Carlson, I mean, the, the guy from uh, from Scandinavia who uh, started a little business and, and ended up expanding, growing, and uh, you know now major supplier of, of uh, companies like New Flyer and so on. In fact, to set up operations in the U.S. Uh, and uh, really, you know, leverage technology uh, to 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 build a company and employ you know many many people at their place. And then same thing with Americ. Uh, you know, again, an immigrant. And, and it's funny how many of these stories are people that moved here from another country. And uh, so it speaks to the value of, of, uh, of immigration. But uh, again, it moved here um, with a start a small little printing business or color business and then uh, focused on color chips and 
from that and from supporting, you know, his sons and everything getting in the business are now, um, you know, in just about every continent in the, of the world and uh, have uh, built a, a really fantastic, very specialized color chip business uh, that's, that's uh, sought after. Well, uh, and th- th- they do it better than anybody else on the planet. Yeah, and no, and and these are the stories we're going to tell on Thursday night, uh, along with a couple of other companies that are, you know, emerging. Uh, you know, the winning combination, a company that's just coming out of nowhere to really uh, uh, rocket in sales, and and uh, right here in in Manitoba, and uh, as well, Friesen, so a little company out of Altona that's uh, known worldwide for the quality of work they do and the, and the fantastic uh, technology they've adopted to make it work. Well, it sounds like a fascinating week, Ron. What is what is the technology that uh, Friesen's is uh, that they do in Altona? Well, yeah, well, they they do a lot of printing, but what they've done is rather than just simply printing, you know, sort of one level on on books. In other words, print. They've now learned how to, uh, in a sense, almost print uh, three dimensionally, uh, and so they they will print packaging for companies like Shavers, for example so that the packaging itself gives you the feel and the texture of the product inside. Uh, so it's, it's very unique, very specialized, and, uh, and, and it's given them you know, unique market opportunities. And what's the winning combination? That's another group you're going to be honoring as well? Yeah, that's right. They produce uh, you know, uh, health products uh, that are natural, that are, for example, a health product uh, that you can take, which is natural product that helps you quit smoking. Uh, and there's other, you know, vitamin-type programs that they have, uh, again, uh, very, very well thought through, scientifically demonstrated, and, uh, and, and are, are gaining very quickly the reputation of being, uh, you know, fantastic uh, quality um, uh, health food that people can take part in. Um, you know, we're serving bars over here as another example of, of a little, you know, Colleen Dick out of Neverville who's... Uh, built a business around the uh, manufacturing fantastic energy food uh, bars that are you know really healthy for you instead of uh, a lot of sugar is it Sean McKay from the composite center is it, yeah. am I remembering Sean's first name right we yeah. had him on the program last week or the week before and just yeah. now this whole idea of combining and looking to include uh, composites along with uh, more agricultural byproducts I mean this yeah. is this is uh, the definition of innovation and the idea of necessity becoming the mother of all invention. Well, absolutely, and I, I'm happy to be on the board of, of CIC, and I, I'm a huge fan of, of Sean and what they're doing over there. They're they're a gem in the world, literally. Uh, they're known all across the world for what they do over here. But absolutely, they're using natural products to to build things, uh, and so environmentally and from sustainability perspective. Uh, and we had a couple of speakers here today at the conference that picked up on that uh, where we're going and. Uh, what the future is and the opportunities, a huge opportunity for us. And it's all about innovation. It's not necessarily big federal government innovation grants or anything like that. It's, it's individual companies who see opportunity and through entrepreneurial eyes, uh, you know, put things together. And at CME, it's our pleasure to be able to bring these people together, to network them and to watch them blossom then. That's our job. 
Ron Kozlowski is the vice president of the Canadian Manufacturers and Exporters Manitoba. Ron, thank you so much for taking some time today to have a chat with us about this. We appreciate my, it. My pleasure. Thank you. And again, we are talking about Manufacturing Week, which celebrates the future of manufacturing in Manitoba. Manu- Manitoba Manufacturers, by the way, sold $17.4 billion in goods in 2016. And the Gala Awards Dinner once again Thursday night at Convention Center starting at uh, 5.30. Your forecast is up. Oh, yes. Before we do that. 680 CJOB's fly away to you too. Your time to win is now. Thank you, Jeff Forte and controller. He's waving at me. Hey, hey, don't forget to call out Pamela Zaslow's name. Pamela Zaslow. You have five minutes to call 204-780-6868 for your chance to win a trip for two to Vancouver, May 12th, for the sold-out U2 concert at BC Place Stadium. The draw happening March 31st with Shadow Davis. Pamela Zaslow, 204-780-6868. 225. Congratulations to Pamela Zaslow. She called. Woo-hoo-hoo. It's a good. I, I don't know if she was waiting at two ten or if she just happened to turn on her radio at two twenty and heard us <laughs> do it when we when we finally did it. We're just outside that allowable time based on the rules of the contest. We don't mean to be dragging you into listening any longer than you need to. But we don't mind when you do. So <laughs> congratulations to Heather. This is not intentional on our, our part. Uh, it's very exciting to know that you've been entered to win. And you can still get in. It's not too late. Go to cgob.com if you'd like to hear your name mentioned and announced either at 710, 11.10, 2.10, or 5.10. Did I miss any times there? No, 710, 11.10, 2.10-ish, and 5.10. <laughs> it doesn't say ish on that sheet. Are you sure? <laughs> It should, but it doesn't. I think it's in the rules. Uh, You have five minutes to call, 204-780-6868. Once again, Pamela Zaslow, uh, super excited by all accounts, according to Jeff Forte of Master Control. So, Pamela, we are glad to hear that you are excited. You now will have a shot to have your name called in the big draw when Shadow Davis Show calls a grand prize winner from all the qualifiers on Friday, March 21st for the CJOB Flyway. 31st. What did I say? 21st. That would have been yesterday. Did I say the 21st? I think that's today's there, there, the 21st. That's, that's, my, that's today's mistake. It's okay. You're limited to one. I got the name one. right. I got the name right. You're limited got, to one, I buddy. I was excited that I got her name right, and then I said March 21st. Yeah, today's the 21st. I'm just going to go soak my head. Would have been in the past. 226 on 680 CJOB. Global News coming up next. A new Muppet with blazing red hair and bright green eyes will represent the full range of children on the autism spectrum. Hi, Julia. But character Julia will make her Sesame Street television debut in April on HBO and PBS. Developing Julia and all the other components of her storyline required years of consultation with organizations, experts, and families within the autism community. Dave Schreiber, ABC News, New York. There's only one thing I like more than Dave Schreiber, and that's Sesame Street itself. I think the lessons that we have all learned from Sesame Street over the years are incalculable. One of the great gifts 
of technology and of entertainment has been Sesame Street. And I tip my hat personally to them. And as, as I mentioned yesterday, as I tip my hat metaphorically to, I think it was one of our listeners, uh, just this idea of Sesame Street introducing this type of character and this character with this type of of, of of situation, having autism, I think is great. He's Brett, I'm Greg, and we're joined in studio by Dr. Kirsten Worth, Worth Behavioral Health Services. Uh, Dr. Worth's credentials are lengthy, uh, but at the top of it, licensed psychologist and board certified behavior analysis doctoral and has a PhD in psychology, applied behavioral analysis from the University of Manitoba, and currently an adjunct professor in the psychology department at the University of Manitoba. And Dr. Worth, thanks for taking some time with us today. I know you spend so much time dealing with individuals on the autism spectrum. What was your thought when you heard that Sesame Street was going down this road? I thought it was great. Uh, just like you said, you said, well, I think that Sesame Street has been, and uh, that's absolutely true. They, the results of over 30 years of research on Sesame Street have shown to produce um, really favorable social results and academic results for kids all around the world. So it's not just your thoughts that's actually supported by research. Is there a, a risk uh, of this character being a caricature in any way, and and I like and I, and a situation where like good intentions, but maybe not the best execution. Does that scare you at all? I think that is probably a risk with any character that is supposed to uh, demonstrate a particular disorder or any kid. Really, uh, it sounds like Sesame Street has done a lot of research over the last several years using experts and people from Autism Speaks and different universities to develop this character so that they could encompass a good depiction of what a child with autism could look like. But they're also very clear that this is just one child. It doesn't certainly display all the characteristics of autism and not every child with autism will look or present like Julia, but they did, I think, a decent job of portraying the general characteristics that lead to that diagnosis. I think it's safe to say that there is no one character that could represent all the dis- different aspects and the different uh, associated um, parts of this disorder. Correct. Yeah. So maybe you could give us some insight for those that, you know, none of us have seen Julia on Sesame Street yet because she doesn't make her debut until April, but maybe you could back up our conversation a little bit and talk about autism in, in some general terms and and the effect that it's had on our society because our awareness of it is at an all-time high. Well, I, I think we like to think it's working towards a high. I mean, it, it's certainly Has better it now. Higher? Has it ever been yeah, higher? Correct. Yeah, right. It? It's, yeah. it's better than it's ever been. I think it's still not Where it great. needs to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, but certainly introducing a character like this is going to help work its way towards that, particularly because it's geared towards preschool age children and therefore their parents and caregivers who are the first people to often have questions about the characteristics of their children. Um, so some of those things that they might be noticing in their young children um, might be some sort of odd stereotyped motor movements like hand flapping or um, finger play that looks unusual or staring at objects out of the sides of their eyes 
or um, repetitive rocking or doing any kind of other stereotype repetitive or ritualistic type of behavior along those lines. Um, there, there might be vocalizing that goes along with that. They might have delayed speech. They might not. Um, but lots of children with autism uh, often do end up having delayed um, speech or delayed language in some way um, where maybe they can, um, like I've certainly worked with quite a number of kids who have at age three, they can speak in sentences, but they can't do so functionally. So they can repeat things that they've heard from movies or scripts or other people say but they can't ask for things that they want. They can't, mm. you know, functionally do the simplest of things that you would expect children under the age of 12 months to be able to do. Or sometimes they might have difficulty even just um, because there's a difficulty often with joint attention and the social reciprocity, like watching what one person is doing or looking at and referencing that and adjusting their own behavior. Um, that's often a, a big flag uh, as well because you see infants doing that you know where you smile and you coo at them they smile and they coo back or um, you know between six and 12 months of age they might start imitating faces their parent is making or you know smiling back and things like that and sometimes kids with autism aren't um, doing any of those things or having difficulty with imitating um, there's a kind of a, a wide variety of uh, you know, why now it's called an autism spectrum is because there are children from one end of severity all the way to a lesser end of severity. So, Is Sesame Street then, by doing this, are they not just helping kids who watch the show, but also parents and caregivers who are seeing this and maybe don't quite understand, so they're getting a, a an assist as well from the show? I think so, and I think that was part of the premise behind it um, and behind Autism Speaks getting involved in it because they do a lot of work with trying to raise awareness. Um, and it because it is so imperative that children receive intervention as early as possible, it's imperative that they get diagnosed as early as possible. And so noticing those signs in young ones um, at preschool age and younger is important. So showing those things to people and explaining it through a media like Sesame Street is a really good way to do that. So when we talk about the, the fear of maybe slipping through the cracks and because the spectrum is so varied and uh, you look at this and you go, there have to be kids that are still, in spite of our awareness of what's going on, kids that are highly functioning but might be dealing with autism, some part of the spectrum that aren't getting the attention that they need. Mm -hmm. How do we, how do we filter those individuals out and how do we help these kids? Well, hopefully we're catching them younger and younger. That's the first thing is that I hear from parents all of the time that they knew when their child was really young that something wasn't quite right. They always felt like they seemed a little bit different or socially they were a little more awkward than their peers were. There were things that they did kind of repetitively or had, a you know, those unusual finger movements or they did things that just didn't seem quite right. But then they were, you know, they brought it up to a pediatrician or just to a family friend and people are often well-meaning and, oh, no you know, that's just boys for you or, um, you know, well, I know so-and-so didn't start talking till they were three and a half. So it's not uncommon for kids to start 
um, talking when they're older and um, and things like that. So I'm sorry, I lost track of what I was into. No, well, I think really what we're talking about is how is it possible for some kids to evade early detection and to evade early diagnosis and to get older before they finally realize, oh my gosh, they're, they're, they're on the right. spectrum. So lots of that is the, the um, lack of awareness of what people are looking for, um, not just parents, but also with other clinicians or um, physicians that they go see because they go through, you know, they might meet all the developmental milestones um, yet they fit criterion for autism that has nothing to do with those developmental milestones. And that's not what physicians are necessarily looking for. They're doing a better job now, I think, of screening for some of those things, but it's not quite standardized. Um, and not everyone sees a pediatrician and not all pediatricians do that. Um, and so sometimes they'll say, well, you know, let's give it six more months I think people are hesitant to put a diagnostic label on a child so young. Um, and in the case of many other diagnoses, maybe that is an important factor. But for autism, um, because early intensive behavioral intervention is so critical, it's actually more harmful not to test for that sooner. Does part of that come from parents being fearful of having their, their children labeled this way? Are parents hesitant to start asking those questions because in the back of their mind, they're concerned, oh my gosh, what if my child actually has this? Is it, it, do we, in an attempt to protect our kids from a label like that, do we often prevent them from getting the help that they need? There is definitely denial uh, in a lot of cases. Um, I've worked with lots of families where the one parent is saying, no, I really think there's something. And the other parent is saying, oh, he's fine. You're just overreacting or, you know, your parents uh, are kind of labeled as highly anxious and overly sensitive these days. And so um, they and and they're not always trained or used to advocating. And so sometimes you have to push a little bit harder. You have to say, no, I really think there's something. Can Is there somewhere where you can refer my child? And we do have um, a child development clinic here in Manitoba where most preschool children get funneled through. So families should feel like they can advocate for that. They can push for the appropriate testing. Just, if, if anything, just to be on the safe side. They're because on the, the side of caution. Yeah, the cost is too great to wait until um, children get older. And those children that are school age that you're talking about, that they just fell through the cracks and they got missed, uh, the majority of the time everyone else suspected there was something or they maybe always had some difficulty or um, and, and maybe preschools were good about giving them the extra support that they needed in the preschool, but it didn't transfer to the school or schools are maybe hesitant to say something to the parent or they say something, but by the time they hit school age, they're no longer eligible for child development clinic and they um, have to go get a private assessment, which can be extremely costly. And so a lot of families then um, aren't able to go ahead and get that done. 
Dr. Kirsten Wirth with Wirth Behavioral Health Services. She is a licensed psychologist and board-certified behavior analyst doctoral, and she is our guest on the subject of Sesame Street. The newest Muppet on Sesame Street is going to represent children with autism, and we are going to continue our conversation. In a moment, I want to ask Dr. Wirth, when we're talking about the spectrum, I've always been curious to ask somebody, what is the spectrum? So that's a question I will pose after your forecast. Up next. When Big Bird first meets the new kid on the block, he's confused when she doesn't respond. Hi, Julia. I'm Big Bird. Nice to meet you. That's because Julia has autism. I'm Brett McGarry, he's Greg Mackling, and she is Dr. Kirsten Wirth with Wirth Behavioral Health Services. She is a licensed psychologist, and she is our guest to talk about autism and the spectrum. And and as I mentioned before our forecast, I wanted to ask you, when we talk about the spectrum and children on the spectrum, what is the spectrum? (laughs) So the spectrum uh, kind of represents... uh linear line of severity where on the one end there there is um, more severe forms of autism where maybe there's also cognitive disability um, there's a lot more autism symptomology that interferes with day-to-day functioning um, and then it you know goes all the way up to the other end which is sometimes called high functioning autism where you're talking about, you know, somebody that appears to be fairly typical to anyone else their same age, but they have some um, characteristic, they still meet the criterion and they might uh, have inappropriate social skills or um, have some odd repetitive or unusual behaviors and things like that. So on that end, there's probably some kids that you went to school with that you think back now and you realize, oh, maybe they had autism and you just didn't realize that's why they seemed like they were rude to other people. And um, they just they, they just were never diagnosed. It, it was never picked up because of the day and age and yeah. the awareness of of uh, educators and, and physicians. Right. And that's, oh, absolutely. The prevalence of diagnosis has uh, increased dramatically just over the last 10 to 15 years. Like when I first started in the field, it was one in 165, I think. And now we're down to like one in 68. So, um, and that's not because all of a sudden there's just this higher incidence of autism. It's because that awareness is is getting better. Diagnostics are getting better and more and more kids are um, getting the help that they need. And we can talk about those reasons another time because there are a lot of people who feel that there are, you know, environmental reasons why these numbers are through the roof. And, and of course, you've mm-hmm. seen the anti-vax uh, movement that says that uh, vaccines are a part of this. And, and you and I have discussed this on air and off. Uh, Kirsten, this the idea of vax that's been totally disproven, totally debunked. Okay, yeah. so before we go, you wanted to mention a couple things about Sesame Street, about what an excellent job they've done on so many things. But you also had a question about how are they going to treat Julia's appearances, and are they hmm. going to do one thing or another every single time she appears? Right. So um, like I was saying during the break, there is just decades of research on Sesame Street across 15 countries, across 10,000 children. And they're showing 
that there's really nice um, positive results on increasing pro-social behaviors amongst kids, increasing positive attitudes towards different racial groups, um, increasing like letter recognition and naming and number and um, number naming and vocabulary and things like that, um, all in kids between the ages of two and five over the last 30, 40 years. Um, and but one study that I found really interesting was they um, they put in the show a child with Down syndrome and a child with a physical disability, and then they asked a bunch of preschoolers questions about what they saw afterwards, and and they. Um, they went pretty easy on the child with the physical disability. You know, they felt like they could and couldn't do certain things because of their physical disability. But when they came to answering questions about the child with Down syndrome, um, because often it's uh, uh, physical features that you're looking at with Down syndrome, the children at that age couldn't really discriminate those features. And so they felt that they didn't quite understand the reason why the child couldn't do the things that they should have been doing and they thought he didn't try hard enough and, um, you know, if he would have tried harder, maybe he could have done it. And so that led me to um, pose the question to myself anyways uh, about this character, Julia, because she looks like everybody else and that's often the case with autism is that the child presents like everybody else but um, but then, you know, in the clip you just played, Big Bird walks up and he's like, oh, hi, Julia, and then she just ignores him and keeps on playing and uh, and he makes a couple of attempts and then he stops and then they explain, oh, well, Julia has autism. And so she sometimes she won't stop and return to social interactions and things like that. And so they explain it in that episode. And they and I know they're doing that in books, in the videos, too, which are good educational tools, I think. I wonder, though, just given that research with the uh, with the individual with Down syndrome in that study, are they going to mention that she has autism in every episode that she's in to explain her behaviors. Cause I'm wondering how the children are to interpret that. Um, most children, and I see this happen in daycares and schools on a daily basis, um, is that children will just assume that the child doesn't like them or doesn't want to play with them or they're just being mean. And so they'll kind of give up and walk away because their attempts are getting extinguished. Dr. Kirsten Wirth, licensed psychologist, board-certified behavioral analyst doctoral with Wirth Behavioral Health Services. She is also an adjunct professor in the psychology department at the University of Manitoba, talking about Julia, the newest Muppet on Sesame Street, and she has autism. Dr. Wirth, thank you so much for joining us today on 680-CJOB. It's 3.08, Monday afternoon. No, it's Tuesday. Yay! One day closer to the weekend. <laughs> but it's still so far away. Tuesday doesn't have, we've had that conversation about Tuesday, like is other than, well, what is Tuesday? Cheap night at the movie, you always say. Let's go to Buffalo Bills. <laughs> That's not open anymore. <laughs> no. Is it called Nashville now? Apparently I'm trapped in... Uh, 1996. Yeah, I mentioned the reference of 35 cent draft earlier, which would have <laughs> been only. at, which would have been at Euphoria in 1995, 96. <laughs> and only. then Buffalo Bills, was it Buffalo Bills Wild Saloon? Or just saloon. Buffalo Bills. Yeah, there might have been a wild in there somewhere. I should know that. but uh, Well, you know what? Maybe it's just as well that you don't. 
We're heading towards 4 o'clock. Richard Cloutier, Julie Buckingham will get you home informed, a little bit smarter, a little bit safer. Traffic and weather together. They've got sports. They've got business news. They've got entertainment news. Are you uh, doing anything for them today? Yes, it's New Release Tuesday, so I will have a look at what is coming to home video tonight. Fantastic. Uh, You've been working out? Uh, Not really. But you've been walking to work. Trying to. Right. I guess that counts. Absolutely. You've done really well on the quitting smoking thing. Yes, I have conquered. I've climbed that mountain. Congratulations on that. But not everybody with the workout, right? You make this promise to yourself that I'm going to work out more. I'm going to get healthier. Quite often we hit these setbacks and we get these plateaus. And there's a research study being conducted at the University of Manitoba that is looking at how we can conquer those plateaus. I think I'm right about that. Brittany Semenchuk joins us now. She's a master's candidate, University of Manitoba, Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management. Two kinesiology guests in a row on uh, at 3.05 on, uh, on consecutive days. Brittany, thanks for taking some time with us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us, am I close to understanding what the study's all about? Yes, you definitely are. You're right on track. Fantastic. Well, maybe you could uh, give it to our listeners in our own words, because I suspect at a certain point when I'm talking, people just tune me out. So, <laughs> Sounds good. So we know that exercise has a whole host of benefits. So we know that it can increase strength, reduce the risk of chronic diseases, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, reducing and managing our weight. And these benefits normally are what drives people to set exercise goals. But like you said, unfortunately, setbacks are an inevitable part of someone's journey towards an exercise goal. And so these bumps in someone's exercise goal can sometimes have devastating consequences, such as discontinuation of the exercise goal or stopping exercise altogether. And so, therefore, it's really important we establish what factors assist individuals getting back on track after an exercise setback. And so specifically, my study looks at how individuals respond to a past exercise failure or setback, and that could be anything from not being able to reach an exercise goal, like you had managed to go or you said you were going to go to the gym three times in a week, but you were only able to make it twice, Um, and what factors are involved in people getting back on track with their goal afterwards. And so the good part of this study is that it's completed completely online, and it takes approximately 30 minutes. And so it can be done in the comfort of the participant's own home. Um, But in order to be eligible, individuals need to be between the ages of 18 and 64 years years old, recall a past exercise setback within the last six uh, six months, and be free of any injury that would prevent them from being physically active. Sorry? I was going to ask you, Brittany, and my apologies for interrupting. No, that's okay. What led you to come up with this study? Because I I think it's an important area of study because for so many of us, we we set these goals and and, uh, we can become discouraged. So I think the idea of focusing on how to get back on track can be really helpful. So what led you to come up with this? Definitely in my past. So I did an undergrad in kinesiology and I was a trainer for a little bit. And that's a common complaint that a lot of my clients had. They'd come and say, you know, I was exercising 10 years ago and all of a sudden somehow I stopped and I just never got back on track. And so it just seems that a lot of people that you talk to, this is a common problem that's faced is, you know, we start, especially around January when we all have these great New Year's resolutions and we go for about three to four weeks and then suddenly, you know, it's the middle of March or April and we go, what happened to the gym? I was doing so well and now I never, I never go anymore. So 
So when we talk about exercise and uh, different uh, types of health regimens, uh, preventing disease, cardiovascular disease, depression, uh, just about you name it, diabetes, you name it, uh, one of the prescriptions is more activity. So how is it that people that take the step and make the pledge to be more active encounter these setbacks? What are the primary causes of these things? Do we know, Brittany? Um, So there's a lot of different reasons, and it's very individual, but sometimes a lot of it is time. Um, A lot of it is we're very much in an instant gratification kind of society, and so some of these benefits of physical activity you can't necessarily see or, you know, it takes time to get. Like you said, it prevents things like cardiovascular disease, but how can you actually see that? And so a lot of people like to go in, start doing physical activity, and get those immediate um, kind of outcomes, such as the losing weight and things like that. But um, I think sometimes when people start off, you know, it's not as quick as they would like, and therefore it all of a sudden drops down on their kind of to-do list. So people, so what you're saying is people, they want to see those gains immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and with exercise, you know, it it sometimes takes a little bit longer than people like. And like I said, too, sometimes what you get out of exercise, you can't physically see. So I'm going to continue our conversation in a moment. There's a research study being done at the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba by Brittany Semenchuk, who is a master's candidate and looking for participants to be involved in an online exercise study about failures, exercise failures, and setbacks. And it's about trying to figure out how to get over those humps. So we're going to continue this chat after traffic and weather. Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. And Brittany Semenchuk joins us on the phone. She is a master's candidate at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management. And she's looking for participants to be involved in her exercise study. It's an online exercise study about recalling past exercise failures and setbacks within the last six months. If you've uh, Anybody who goes to the gym, I think, has been through that kind of an exercise setback. So that, I think this is a great study. Before we forget to do it, Brittany, how do people get involved in this study? Yes, most definitely. So they can just send me a quick email. Uh, the email address they'd be sending it to is exercise setback. So that's all one word. Uh, so exercise setback at gmail.com. And so all they have to do is just send a quick email saying that they're interested in participating, and I'll send them back the link to the study. So are there different roadblocks? Because it's uh, you have to, to be eligible for the study. You have to be 18 to 64. So I'm curious, are there different roadblocks or common roadblocks for different age groups? Um, I believe so. Um, I'll definitely see once I analyze the data. But I think that there's definitely a huge difference between, you know, the 18-year-olds and going to the gym. And it might be something like hanging out with friends is of high importance. And then once you get to maybe the later years, it's more spending time with family or injuries, um, things like that. So I think there will be a difference between the type of barriers that people face. Now, uh, Brittany, I want to read you a text message from our listener and our uh, friend Tim who says, I can't believe I forgot to go to the gym today. 
that seven years in a row now, <laughs> laughing out loud. Uh, I'm guessing Tim, based on that first text message, would not be eligible for the study, but he may be based on his second. He says, I actually ex- exercise on a regular basis. I feel drained and sick if I don't. So obviously you want people who are usually exercising, but as you mentioned, have suffered one of these setbacks in the last six months. Yeah, and they don't technically have to be exercising now. So as long as they exercised within the last six months and, you know, they might have exercised six months ago, had a failure and just never got back on track, and that's completely okay too. Um, So they don't have to currently be exercising. They just have to have had that exercise setback or failure within the last six months. So if you'd like to be a part of the study, exercise setback at gmail.com and uh, Brittany will uh, ask you a couple questions. And if you qualify, then uh, she'll ask you to take the study. Uh, sound about right, Brittany? It sounds perfect. Thanks so much, Brittany. Are there, right, thank you so much. How long do you expect this uh, study to take you to analyze all the data? So I'm hoping uh, that I'll have it all analyzed and written up by the end of this summer. So uh, there's also a section that participants can ask for the feedback, so getting all the study results, and I'll be sending those out hopefully this fall. And Brittany, almost let you go without uh, you have a golden carrot that you're dangling in front of people that might want to participate. Yes, I do. So also, just to thank you for participating in the study, uh, you'll be offered a $5 gift card to either Starbucks or Chapters. Gotta love that. Brittany, thanks so much for uh, your insight on this. Uh, Fantastic work. And uh, promise us you'll send us an email to let us know when your study is complete and we can bring you back to talk about it. Most definitely. Thank you so much for having me. You're more than welcome. Brittany Semenchuk is a master's candidate at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management, doing a study looking for participants to be involved in her online exercise study. You may be eligible if you can recall a past exercise failure or setback within the last six months. You are an adult between the age of 18 to 64 living in Canada, and you are free of any injury that would prevent you from being physically active. The uh, email address, once again, setback at gmail.com. Easy enough. I was looking at the clock there, and I was rushing out because I thought we had to be done by 321 there, but I... I guess I I need to learn the clock still after all this time together. It's actually good that you did because that gave me time to give all that summary. And we can thank Brittany once again for joining us. And now we can say traffic and weather and sports next. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling on 680 CJOB. We have stuff to give away. Yeah, man. Double pet. What was that? I said, yeah, man. No, it it came out a little bit squeakier. It's a new voice. Yeah, man. No, I kind of liked it. It was, it was like a cartoon character. Yeah, I got a few. I Double, got a few for sure. Double pass for the advanced screening on March 29th at Silver City Polo Park for the zookeeper's wife. Maybe that's why I love animals so much. You look in their eyes. And you know exactly what's in their hearts. It's based on a true story. Jessica Jas- Chastain plays the zookeeper's wife. When things get bad in Poland, she uses her zoo in Warsaw to hide Jews from the Nazis. So it's a heavy subject, yes, but that doesn't mean we can't have some fun to give away those tickets. And I see Jeff Forte has already blocked off the lines. Thank you very much, sir. Greg, we've been doing crappy 80s TV trivia today. Or did you block it off? Greg, I think Greg blocked the lines. That's Pardon okay. Me. I'm having my back and forth with Mr. Fun over there on the other side of the glass. He is. He, he's a smiling, happy guy. Jeff Forte is always smiling. So we've been doing crappy 80s TV trivia today. 
So I thought, let's do some crappy 80s movie trivia just to try to switch it up a wow, little bit. Wow, look at you really stepping outside yeah. your comfort oh, zone today. What, yes, I am. Yeah. And uh, this kind, this one kind of hit me. I'm like, oh, I don't. I got to use this instead of TV. And I okay. Think, I think we might stick with movies for the rest of the week. All right. What was that movie from the early 80s about a lady who grew up in the jungle and can talk to animals? Oh, my goodness. 204-780-6868. I need you to call 204-780-6868. The, 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 I'm hesitant to call it a question. The, it's more of an intimation than a question. <laughs> oh, what was that movie from the early 80s about a lady who grew up in the jungle and can talk to animals? I feel like I like if you this is one of those things where if you know it, then I've sort of just handed you it's a, really throwing you a softball. Right. But the idea is that if you don't, it might take you a second to Google but it. But isn't like real trivia like that? Like either you know it or you don't. Yeah. And that's the whole point, right? You want to give the tickets to, to people who are on your same wavelength. Think so. Yes. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. And we will... Give you some tickets to see the zookeeper's wife if you know the answer to the question. In the meantime, while Jeff Forte is fielding calls on that, yes, Brett, we we didn't we we are we told you yesterday that we would carry on with the conversation about marijuana, and we just wanted to let you know that we are actively looking for somebody that we can talk to about it. We had the if if you didn't catch yesterday's chat. We had some folks on talking about marijuana and driving, specifically as it relates to the fatalities on the road and the time of day that they're happening based out of research in the United States. And the research points to between 4 and 8 p.m. as opposed to alcohol-related deaths, which see their spike uh, from midnight to 4 a.m. The reason why we talked about this was on the, the heels of the Manitoba Public Insurance the results of their roadside testing, where they showed that I think it was 10%. I'm just pulling. That's new, correct. 10% of people who were pulled over had drugs in their system. Half of those drugs, or half of those drivers with drugs in their system, were cannabis. We weren't pushing any kind of agenda, any sort of anti marijuana rhetoric. I'll just state it for the record. I'm on board with legalization, not because I smoke marijuana, but I it just seems like one of those things where it's a fight you're never going to win. Like I can't see I, I can't imagine a world where marijuana doesn't exist. It almost equates to prohibition to a certain extent in my mind, right? Going back to the nineteen thirties and trying to tell people, oh no, you're not going to drink alcohol. We're going to make it illegal. Well, we know how that turned out. We know that it stopped very few people from drinking alcohol. And the fact that marijuana is illegal stops very few people from consuming it. Yeah. So why are we going down this road? Whether it's good for you, whether it's, hey, it's, if it was really good for you, it would be part, part of our everyday diet. I understand <laughs> it's part of lots of people's everyday diet, <laughs> but not because it's necessarily good for you, Yeah. but dot, dot, dot. And now you fill in all sorts of conversation that go after that. It's got medicinal uh, purposes, pain killing, et cetera, et cetera. Bottom line is we wanted to talk about this from the point of view of safety on the roads, this MPI research. We found a researcher uh, that had some more, not just empirical, well, empirical research on time of day, et cetera. But it opened up a whole can of worms about this idea that anything anti 
quote unquote anti, and that's what we weren't trying to be, uh, is propaganda. That's right. We got the, the we, I mean, the, one of the texts came from somebody who I think was having some fun with us saying propaganda, but they did the same person pointed out, how do they do the test? Because it stays right. in your blood for up to 30 days. So, and we had a lot of people saying, listen, marijuana, cannabis can stick around in your system for a long time, but it doesn't mean you're high or baked or whatever you want to call it while you're driving. Uh, so we've got a whole bunch of comments that we just wanted to share some of them with you. And this is one that, uh, I think this was the first one that came in. I assume this is a right-wing group because the fear-mongering is blatant. Again, <laughs> we weren't trying to fear-monger, but yes. I, I suppose that is the point of view that the woman we were speaking to from, I believe was, the group was Smart Alternatives for Marijuana uh, Canada, and we got one from a professor that said, as a professor, he would know. Oh, no. <laughs> this was a reference to our guest. As a professor, he would know that we should be looking at the differential between the prelim and post legalization for the fatalities being deceptive, not credibility. Well, actually did go back to 2013 before marijuana had been legalized in Washington state. So there there was uh, evidence and there was data prior to it becoming legal in Washington state. So what that comparison was made. So we just wanted to let you know that we, we have heard your feedback. I've actually got a a sheet, uh, a packet of of papers here with all of the text messages that we received on it. And we are looking into it and we are hoping to continue this conversation and maybe even open up the phones at some point with you to talk about it. Because uh, like I said, Greg and I don't smoke marijuana, but we're, I'm not a proponent, but I'm not an opponent. Right. And we're trying to learn more along with a lot of you. And so we love when the listeners educate us. We don't pretend. (laughs) And trust me, uh, there's some pretending that would be required for me to try and make you believe I I know anything about anything. The bottom line on this stuff is that it is about a conversation. A lot of people have concerns. A lot of people have zero concerns. We like to execute and share both sides of that discussion with you. And we appreciate you doing it with us. And the I guess the thing that I was most surprised about, Brett, is the fact that there is no breathalyzer type device out there that allows for an accurate reading or lack uh, an accurate understanding of when an individual last ingested marijuana, smoked it, took it, ate it, what have you, because it does stick in the system. And what they're using right now is the equivalent of a roadside sobriety test. Basically quizzing you, talking to you, interacting with you. That's really the only tool at police's disposal right now. And I plead ignorance on this. I didn't realize that. I thought they had some sort of test. And they don't. I think there I think there are some jurisdictions that use a saliva-based test. But once again, that's what a lot of our listeners were pointing out to us yesterday. You can have a saliva-based test. But it's not like alcohol where it flushes out of your system and X amount of hours. It can be in there for days, weeks, almost a month in some cases. Maybe they use a test, and this is just me off the top of my head. Maybe they use a test only as a way to – because if they – I would imagine a police officer, a trained police officer, would know if someone is high as a kite. Well, this is what the the WPS is saying, right? So if they maybe if they see they roll the windows down and they see someone's eyes are bloodshot or however it works I don't know 
uh, and they can they they have a hunch maybe the test would be used as a way to confirm. But again, it sounds like the saliva test uh, is not foolproof. So anyway, we're going to continue. Our, our this research continues. It does. Uh, but and just before traffic and weather, need to congratulate. Where is the name? Where to go? Melissa Kavanaugh for correctly answering today's crappy 80s movie trivia. Somebody actually got the answer out of that question? Yes. The question was, what was that movie from the early 80s about a lady who grew up in the jungle and can talk to animals? And the answer is Sheena, queen of the jungle. She was an innocent in a savage world. He was a stranger from a distant land. Their struggle against an overwhelming evil turned into a discovery of overpowering love. Sheena. She alone has the power to save paradise. Oh my goodness. Stars Tanya Roberts, whom you might know better as Midge from that 70s show. Uh, Sheena started as a comic book character in the 1930s, and there was a TV show in the 50s starring Irish McCalla, and then another TV show in the early 2000s starring Gina Lee Nolan, but as a film in the year 1984. So congratulations once again, Melissa Kavanaugh. You're going to the zookeeper's wife. Traffic weather next. Okay, I got to clear this up because there's no way I'm alone in this. Okay. When you said Midge from that 70s show, yeah. I'm thinking of the mom, Eric's mom. Yeah. But her character's name was Kitty. Yeah. So the answer was Tanya Roberts, who was she- Sheena? Sheena, queen of the jungle. So that's the wife of the neighbor. Yeah. The curly, yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. <laughs> Wow, I had no idea. Kitty was not the queen of the jungle. No. Okay. All right. Now I'm clear. As you were. Delete your history from your phone. Julie Buckingham and Richard Cloutier are here to talk about what's coming up on the news. Hi, Julie. I got an eyeful there. It's Tanya Roberts. Oh, no. She saw Sheena, queen of the jungle. In her natural garb. Who knew? (laughs) I didn't know. Hi, guys. Hi, Richard. How's it going? All right. Oh, hi, you? Rich. There you go. What's happening today? Uh, lots, of, lots of people are talking roads today, and uh, we've got some different takes on it. We looked back at the worst roads over the last six years, and the one common denominator... St. James Street? Correct. And Isn't so, it getting fixed this year? Well, we're going to ask the question of Councillor Scott Gillingham. And he's going to tell us whether it's going to happen or not this year. Hmm. And uh, our Global News colleague, Sheldon Rogers, out today talking with folks about how, in many cases, commuters are getting around by using residential streets and ripping those streets up because of traffic problems. Sure. And there's all sorts of examples of that. So Sheldon will join us as part of our Live at 5 If we fix St. James Street, we'll have nothing to talk about. I know, but you know what? It was 32 (laughs) years ago that they dug St. James Street completely out and added that fifth, that middle lane that they're going to get rid of now. Is that how long a street... I mean, and it's been crappy for seven years. Like, is that all we're going to get is 25 years out of the streets? Like... Uh, anyway, yes, we're, I, I could we do live an in the climate. Rant on this. We really? live in the climate that we live in, unfortunately. Uh, uh, so they're just I'm tired not of people blaming it on the climate. The real, the roads That's in, just the reality. Well, the well, reality is we need to fix our roads more frequently. Well, the, well you notice the roads are seem to be better as soon as you cross into the yeah, cross com- a certain yeah, border. Completely different climate, Brett. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's because they use. I, I believe it's because they use concrete as opposed to asphalt. Trying to say the word correctly. 
Oh, it doesn't sound right. Asphalt is wrong. I guess it is. It, no... Asphalt is wrong. Yes. Right. Asphalt. Well, whoever's fault it is, we're going to get into that <laughs> a little bit after the four o'clock news here on 680 CJOB. I'm excited to talk to uh, Dr. Jody Samra. She's going to talk to us about the study that shows 18 to 34-year-olds are spending 34 hours a week online at a detriment to our real-life relationships. And she just looks like she's going to be a ton of fun to talk well, to. And how often, have you gone, how, fun have, how often have you gone out with somebody and you just kind of sat there and you're on the phone. I never noticed. I'm looking at my phone. So I never noticed. Richard Kluche and Julie Buckingham, thank you so much. The two of you, they will have the news from 4 until 7 on 680 CJOB. He's Greg Mackling. I'm Brett McGarry. Jeff Forte and Master Control. Thanks for listening to Mackling and McGarry on 680 CJOB.